0: ID, the future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design.
1: Welcome to ID, the future. I'm your host, Eric Anderson, and joining us on the show today is Dr. Jonathan Wells to talk about one of the most iconic experiments in the history of biology. Indeed, one of the most iconic experiments in all of science. Dr. Wells is a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He has a PhD in molecular and cell biology from the University of California at Berkeley. And a PhD in religious studies from Yale University. His experience includes supervising a medical laboratory in Fairfield, California, and teaching biology at California State University in Hayward. He is author of several books, including Icons of Evolution and The Myth of Junk DNA, and has contributed to several other volumes, including the recently updated and expanded volume, The Mystery of Life's Origin. Welcome, Jonathan.
0: Happy to be here, Eric.
1: So, Jonathan, most of our listeners will be very familiar with this famous experiment, but for any who might be new, and just to make sure we're all on the same page, maybe you can take just a moment to remind us. What was the Miller-Urey experiment?
0: Well, in the first half of the 20th century, scientists thought that the Earth had formed from gases torn from the sun, most of which is hydrogen. So, in the first half of the 20th century, Most scientists thought that the Earth's early atmosphere consists mainly of hydrogen and chemicals combined with it, such as ammonia, methane, water, and hydrogen itself. Mm -hmm. In the early 1950s, Stanley Miller, who was a graduate student in the laboratory of famed chemist Harold Urey, did an experiment in which he placed these gases with boiling water inside a glass apparatus and passed the mixture through a spark, which simulated lightning. Mm -hmm. After a week, Miller analyzed the brown, tarry substance at the bottom and found that it contained two or maybe four amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and proteins are the building blocks of living cells. So people got quite excited to think that maybe Miller had demonstrated experimentally the first step in the origin of life.
1: Yeah. And this was at the University of Chicago, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So this was this was exciting, and it really came to occupy a prominent place among all the experiments of the 20th century. What were what some of the key issues that it was tackling and, and things that it seemed to provide evidence for?
0: Well, Darwin, had uh, he didn't know how life started. He speculated in a letter that it might have started in a warm little pond when certain chemicals spontaneously combined but there was no experimental evidence to support this speculation until Miller's experiment seemed to show that life or the building blocks of life could indeed originate from unguided natural processes.
1: Yeah. So it seemed to provide, we could say at the time, a solid foundation for the answer to this question in a way that was finally tractable and finally based on experiment rather than just conjecture. That's correct. And I think one of the things that jumps out at me also is that it it sort of suggested that maybe life could be experimentally pinned down, you know, bring, it, bring biology into the, the realm of the hard sciences. You know, we can study it in the lab and figure out how, how life could be produced and how it could work.
0: Yes, how it could originate. Yeah. Of course, scientists have done many experiments with living things, so we know sure. a fair amount about them. But the origin of life is a separate question in a way.
1: And very key to this, if you can do this, then there's no creator that's necessarily needed to get life going.
0: That's true. No creator, no intelligent designer, just unguided processes.
1: So I have to tell you a story, Jonathan, a personal story about both Chicago and Miller-Urey. So about, oh gosh, 18, 20 years ago, when I was first getting interested in the evolution intelligent design debate, the first issue that I really dove into was the Miller-Urey experiment and spent a lot of time looking into that. This was before the days of you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and things like that, YouTube. So uh, Yahoo had these uh, discussion forums. They were really sort of an email list. And there was an email list about the Miller-Urey experiment. So I jumped on there and cut my teeth getting involved in this debate over the Miller-Urey experiment. And I remember we were invited to a conference. I was working at a law firm at the time. We were invited to a conference at the largest law firm in Chicago, just a few miles north of University of Chicago overlooking like Michigan. And a colleague and I were giving a presentation on venture capital stuff and uh, down rounds and anti-dilution and things like that. But between sessions, I was interested in Miller-Urey. So I was going over to the receptionist desk and borrowing her computer and checking my email so I could reply to some of these these discussions about the Miller-Urey experiment and really found it fascinating at that time. And, and there's an, one more Chicago connection in 1960 just a few years after Miller-Urey, the very famous paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson, which many of our listeners will know of, he said, at a recent meeting in Chicago, a highly distinguished international panel of experts was polled, all considered the experimental production of life in the laboratory imminent. I think it's safe to say, Jonathan, that that initial enthusiasm has faded. What's happened over the years of people have looked more closely at the Miller-Urey experiment?
0: Yes, you're quite right that optimism uh, has not been justified. Well, even if the Miller-Urey experiment had been completely successful in producing amino acids, people knew, scientists knew that it was a long way from explaining the origin of life because Mm -hmm. the amino acids were, first of all, they were in a, a very messy tar that contained a lot of other chemicals that would interfere with the formation of life, things like formaldehyde. Second of all, even if the amino acids were in pure condition, how would they combine in a sensible way to make proteins, which are not just random assortments of amino acids, but ordered molecules? Right. And finally, how would those proteins then form into life, a living cell? And those are huge questions, which Miller-Urey did not explain right from the start.
1: Yeah. And then you mentioned that there were also some issues with the experiment itself. Maybe, maybe talk through a couple of those with us.
0: Yes, well, as I said earlier, Miller used a mixture of methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen. And scientists had already discovered in the 1920s that the inert or so-called noble gases, helium, neon, argon, and so on, were much rarer on the Earth than would be expected from their distribution elsewhere in the solar system. And some of them concluded even before the Miller experiment that virtually all of Earth's gases had been lost during its formation. What we have now, they thought, and have continued to think, is due mainly to volcanic outgassing, Mm. that is, gases from volcanoes. Well, the main gases from volcanoes now, as presumably then, are carbon dioxide and water vapor. By the 1960s, geochemists were saying that the evidence for the atmosphere used by Miller in his experiment was extremely thin to non-existent. Mm. Carnegie Institution geophysicist Philip Abelson said in 1966, "What is this is a quote, what is the evidence for a primitive methane ammonia atmosphere on earth? The answer is that there is no evidence for it, but much against it.
1: Mm.
0: So the evidence against the uh, methane ammonia atmosphere continued to grow. And finally, in the early 80s, Miller redid his experiment using a mixture consisting mostly of water vapor, carbon dioxide, and carbon monoxide. And he found that unless he included an excess of hydrogen in the mixture, the best he could do was the simplest amino acid, which is glycine. More complex amino acids would require the presence of methane, which, according to the current theories at the time, was not present. When Miller redid the experiment with a realistic mixture of gases, he was unable to produce the building blocks of proteins.
1: Yeah, very interesting, because I think a lot of people have also redone the Miller-Urey experiment using the approach that he took and have been able to tease out a few more amino acids. But the point that you're making, I want to just emphasize for our listeners, is that when the experiment is redone with a more realistic early Earth atmosphere, it's tough to get anything, or, or nobody's gotten anything, I guess. Other than glycine, is that right?
0: Yes, and then only if there's an excess of hydrogen present. Mm. Well, that's a very unrealistic assumption because, as geochemists have pointed out, hydrogen is the lightest element and would have quickly escaped into space on the early Earth.
1: And you're still getting a racemic mixture of, uh, well, glycine's not racemic, but in the other experiments that they were doing under Miller's, we're also getting a racemic mixture, right?
0: Yes, racemic means both left-handed and right-handed amino acids molecules. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, you have to separate those to produce something useful for life.
1: Yeah, and that's still a very big open issue. Jim Tour, I think, talked about that earlier this year in some of his videos that he did on origin of life. So, okay, yes, he's done some excellent videos on that. So lots of issues. And I know you've detailed a lot of these in your previous writings, including your 2000 book, Icons of Evolution, and more recently in the chapter that you contributed to the updated and expanded volume, The Mystery of Life's Origin. I'd certainly encourage our listeners to check that out. And all of these issues give us plenty of reason, I guess, to conclude that the Miller-Urey experiment doesn't really get us anywhere on the road to a naturalistic explanation for the origin of life. But wait, there's more. (laughs) So the reason I wanted to have you on today, Jonathan, is that researchers have now identified one more potential problem with the Miller-Urey experiment. There was a brand new paper published in Nature Scientific Reports just a few weeks ago. Tell us about this new research.
0: Yes, the new research is by Spanish and Italian scientists who repeated the Miller-Urey experiment, the original one, with the methane ammonia hydrogen atmosphere, using Teflon instead of glass. Mm. And they found that in Teflon, the mixture doesn't produce anything like what Miller found. And they concluded that the glass itself, in which the chemical reactions were taking place, served as a catalyst that aided in producing the molecules that Miller identified.
1: Yeah. So talk through that just a little bit. What, what's going on there? Is there pouring, um, I guess, various chemicals and acids in there? There's little bits of the glass, the silicate that's coming off of the vessel and, and helping to catalyze the reaction. Is that what's going on?
0: That's one way they did it. They produced a pretty compelling evidence, I think, that the glass did serve as a catalyst. And they speculated that because glass is mainly silica, and silica is the main constituent of the Earth's crust, that silica in the Earth's crust served as a catalyst on the early Earth.
1: Right, yeah. So so if we're being um, optimistic about abiogenesis, we might say, well, you know, this this latest research isn't an impediment. It just tells us that we need to have silicate rock formations on the early Earth to help us catalyze. So, What's your takeaway on that? Do you think that's realistic?
0: Well, that was the conclusion of the the Italian and Spanish researchers that this actually it was good for the Miller-Urey experiment. The problem is, again, they used the same unrealistic atmosphere in their reaction that Miller himself agreed in the nineteen eighties was not realistic. Mm-hmm. So, if they were to do the same experiment again as Miller did without the methane and ammonia, but with Mainly water vapor and carbon dioxide, they would not get the results. Right. Catalyst or no? So, this is actually the latest, and there have been a lot of attempts over the years to revive the Miller Erie experiment. Uh, It's still in textbooks Mm -hmm. and uh, advertised as evidence that life can begin from unguided processes. Yeah. When in fact, we've known for decades that the evidence is against that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that the researchers were hoping to point to uh, silicate rock formations. There was a news article associated with this. I don't think it came from the researchers themselves, but it was a separate science magazine news article. I want to share just a couple of quotes for our listeners from that. It says, in the years following the original work, meaning Miller-Urey's work, several limitations curbed excitement over its result. The simple amino acids did not combine to form more complex proteins or anything resembling primitive life. Further, the exact composition of the young Earth did not match Miller's conditions, and small details of the setup appear to have affected the results. A new study published last month in Scientific Reports investigates one of those nagging de- details. It finds that the precise composition of the apparatus housing the experiment is crucial to amino acid formation. And then they go on to say New research shows that an unexpected factor may have played a major part in the result glassware. Complex experiments need good controls. And the Miller-Urey experiment failed in this regard. So it's interesting that that they um, took actually a little bit of a stronger critique of that than maybe the authors themselves did in the in the paper. It sounds like
0: yes. And then there's the problem of the uh, composition of the atmosphere,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: which, as Miller himself showed, is is fatal to his experiment.
1: Yeah, I think he
0: even in later years said you've got to have a reducing atmosphere if you're going to get if you're going to get what we want, right? Yes, and some scientists continue to maintain that that was present. Yeah. You know, nobody knows we we weren't there, but uh I'd say the evidence makes it extremely unlikely.
1: Right, right. So Jonathan, where does all this leave us with this long-standing icon of evolution, this Miller-Urey experiment?
0: Well, I think it's a very interesting experiment. I think it's it's justifiable to put it in textbooks as a, a historic event. The problem is that modern textbooks, and I'm talking about textbooks that have come out just in the last few years, present the experiment, as I said before, as evidence that life can form from unguided natural processes on the early earth. And that's simply not true.
1: Yeah, and I think some people have tried to backpedal. In fact, I think I saw something just this past week where people were saying, no, 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 the the Miller-Urey textbook presentation is just meant to show that amino acids can form under natural conditions. Do you think that's a fair representation or are they putting Miller-Urey in there to say much more than that?
0: I think they're trying to say much more than amino acids can form
1: and as you note even having the amino acids you've got to deal with the racemic mixture then you've got to get protein formation then you've got to get information you've got to get the machinery set up so if it's and in there in the textbook them. as right if it's in the textbook as a way to get to origin of life it's it's not a fair representation
0: no it's not i think it, it might be fair to say that the miller urey experiment sparked interest in mm-hmm experimentally investigating the origin of life, but it certainly did not get us any closer.
1: Okay, good summary. Well, hey, Jonathan, thanks for being with us today to walk through this new paper and to help us understand this new challenge to the abiogenesis story. I love this topic because, as I say, it was the first thing that I really cut my teeth on when I got interested in the debate over evolution intelligent design, and it seems the more we know, the less tenable the story becomes. I agree. Thank you for listening to this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the origin of life, join us again at idthefuture.com, on your podcast app of choice, or at our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. Help us share these important messages by sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.